Award-winning author Jerome Charon has published more than 50 works in nearly 50 years. New York Newsday has dubbed him a contemporary American Balzac, and Michael Chabon has called him one of the most important writers in American literature. A number of his works have dealt with historic figures in politics and in the popular culture, and his latest, Big Red, reimagines the widely popular and tragic career of Rita Hayworth during Hollywood's Golden Age. It's published by Live Right and brings Jerome Charon to our show now. Welcome. Welcome, Leonard. Thank you so much. To some degree, this is a straight history of Rita Hayworth's life. Why write it as a novel using real people as your characters? How much other than your narrator have you invented here? Well, it's not simply a question of inventing invention because I grew up with Rita Hayworth. I mean, I saw Gilda when I was seven or eight years old. So um, this is one of the predicaments with writing historical fiction. If you you misplace the history, you'll get a thousand, you know, letters of complaint (laughs) saying, no, Rita did this, Rita did that. So you have to swerve like a kind of snake and tell a narrative and keep as close to the truth as you can. And like some Hollywood films, uh, you've kind of written it as a mix of screwball comedy and tragedy. I hope so. (laughs) Well, that's what Hollywood is about, isn't it? You've written a number of novels featuring historic figures, Abraham Lincoln, Emily Dickinson, Dwight Eisenhower, and Rita Hayworth. What draws you to certain people's lives? Well, I, I, I began thinking mostly about Emily Dickinson. Uh, she was a poet that uh, I absolutely adored. And I, you know, it was a question of a, of a male, you know, writing in a woman's voice. And it was a terrific challenge. But um, I did the research, I did everything, and then I sort of leapt into the novel. I mean, one advantage of writing a historical novel is that you have a kind of skeleton, you have a kind of frame, and also you learn a great deal. I mean, writing about Lincoln was perhaps one of the great events of my life because, I, you know, he was a cliché to me. I mean, I, I, I didn't think very much of him. And then when I started reading about him, mm-hmm. I saw what an extraordinary man he was. And he a complicated life, often contradictory. Yes, often contradictory, and he grew and he grew as he became president. He became an extraordinary man, and for a while, I, everything I wrote was in Lincoln's voice, so I had to find a way of losing it or go insane, but uh, it gives me a kind of skeleton that uh, I, I enjoy you know, working with. Well, this book is also written in a woman's voice. Your first-person narrator, Rusty Redburn, describes herself as an actress who couldn't act, a dancer who couldn't dance, a singer who couldn't sing. So what's she doing in Hollywood? (laughs) Well, you have it. You know, once I had that first sentence on it, I I had the novel, you know, Uh because I... I was going to do a novel uh, in Orson Welles' voice. You know, I, I loved Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Orson Welles, to me, is the great American director. But he was so full of himself that I, I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it in Reader's voice, so I had to invent a character. And it just came to me, Rusty Redburn. You know, Redburn comes from Melville, and Rusty is, you know, red-haired. Mm-hmm. So... 
uh, I wanted her to be a gay woman so that, you know, she could be sexually fluid and I could be right both as a man and as a woman. And um, I love that first sentence. I don't know about you, but it's that first sentence that came to me and the novel just flowed out of it. Well, I must have liked it enough to quote it. (laughs) (laughs) She's a second-string gossip columnist from Kalamazoo who is sent to spy on Hayworth by Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia Pictures. Right. But the thing is, she doesn't spy on them at all. She she loves Reader, and she she's a great fan of Orson, so she manages to sort of mingle between them, and then it's Columbia Pictures that screws everything up. And, you know, she's discovered as a spy, and Orson wants to fire her, but Rita loves her, so, you know, they are a kind of triangle, a trio, and uh, they work together, they dance together, they they move together, and and I, I had tremendous pleasure writing in Rusty's voice. When you assume a voice that, you know, is completely foreign to you and you make it familiar, you have a kind of magic, and it's the music that carries the novel. Well, this story extends far beyond her relationship with Orson Welles, although your subtitle is a novel starring Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles. Now, we mentioned Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia Pictures. Why was he called Harry the Janitor? Well, it's because he was, you know, he would arrive around noon, uh, making sure everyone was at work, and he would leave around midnight. What he would do is turn off every light that was still on. So he began, you know, so people called him the janitor, you know, because he was the light keeper. You know, he was worried about every single penny because, you know, Columbia was part of Poverty Row and they had to get into the big time. So, uh, he, to me, he's an extraordinary character. I had a lot of fun writing around. Was he as manipulative and annoying as you depict him? Worse. He was much worse. Um, he was a terrible man. Uh, he loved Reader, hated Reader, spied on Reader. He wanted to sleep with her. And, you know, her first husband... Um, pimped her out. That's how she got her career, and she was supposed to spend a weekend on um, Orson, on, on, on uh, Harry Cohn's yacht, and at the last minute she backed out, and he never forgave her, but she became such a big star that there was nothing he could do about it, but he treated her horribly. He had microphones in, in her dressing room. He never repaired her dressing room. Uh, and yet, in a some profoundly disturbing way, he did love her, did care about her. Well, if he, her career. if he was such a, uh, an awful person, how was he able to make so many memorable movies? Was it just well, the times? No, I, I think that, um, you know, Columbia didn't have any stars. Uh, um, Reader was the first big star that they had. And uh, Frank Capra was also with, with Columbia, so you have these great Capra comedies. And Gene Arthur was also a Columbia star. But Rita was so enormous that he didn't quite know what to do with her. And by the time you have the 50s, you have From Here to Eternity, you have On the Waterfront. So um, 
he he was interested, you know, in in doing good films, but in doing good films that that sold, that made money, you know. And on the waterfront, to me, is just uh, I mean, it's Grant, it's Brando's greatest performance. You mentioned that Rusty is a lesbian, and that allowed you to do a certain amount of uh, inventing. Uh, yes. She has uh, a, her own encounters, some sweet, some less so, with some real people, some imagined people. Julie Tanaka, an intern Japanese-American right. friend, was she real or that? No, she, she, was, uh, she, she was made up, but I, I did a novel. I was very much in, in, interested in the Japanese internment camps, and when I taught at Stanford, um, I visited the camps. They, they were very disturbing to me because as a child, I grew up, I, we, we all thought that Roosevelt would be the president forever, you know, and then suddenly he died. So that that was a great stain upon him that he uh, allowed these camps to open, you know, where American citizens were put in these camps. And, and it, it's a horrible story because... When they were let out, they were forced, the males were forced to join the army or, or, or be interned again. So it's a terrible blight on American history, and I, I, I wanted to write about it. So I invented Julie and her father, the Baron, and I had uh, um, Rusty go to, want to visit one of the camps. But as a child, remember, all of this, Leonard, is coming out of my childhood. Hollywood was everything to me. It was nothing but Hollywood for me as a child. So um, when, uh, you know, Rusty goes and, and visits the camp, I mean, she's also reliving my own history because I was there myself. Well, yeah. New York was an interesting place at the time. You, you were growing up in the Bronx. Um, I, I, yes. grew up, I grew up in Brooklyn, and uh, every weekend uh, there were shows at the local movie theaters uh, where we could see these these films, plus uh, lots of shorts. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a Saturday. I'm sure you grew up. I'm sure we're twins in that respect. The Saturday matinee was the highlight yeah. of my life yeah. because not only did you see two features, you saw a serial, you saw a cartoon, mm -hmm. and you saw a short. And they may have it's, given you a free comic book as well. They gave me everything, free popcorn. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, it was astounding. It was the greatest event of my childhood was to go to the Saturday matinee. I don't think I missed a single one. Uh, Julia, I, hope you, I hope you didn't either. No, well, I was the eldest, so I was uh, entrusted with bringing my siblings to the movies every weekend. And that was you, uh, part of the fun. Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy it? Because of to course. Me, it was the highlight of my childhood. It was nothing that that in comic books, you know, and and uh, mm -hmm. seeing the Walt Disney films, Bambi, for example, I mean, it was was astounding. It was magical. Uh, I had the great pleasure of visiting, you know, uh, the Disney studios and seeing how that film was made. You know, Hollywood was my life. I grew up. You know, it was my cradle. You know, I I, uh, I I had very little as a child. My parents were immigrants. We were very poor. 
but I always, I saw every film that was made between, let's say, 1942 hmm. and 1955. Every single film that was made. I mean, I, I, you know, by going to the RKO and the Lowys, the two mm-hmm. chains, see everything. Yeah. Well, Julie also allows you to uh, introduce other characters like Clark Gable to the Bankhead right. and Luella Parsons, the, right. the Hollywood gossip columnist. She was a horror. She was, but you see, she had incredible power over studios. You, in other words, before you could release a film, uh, you had to show it to Lolly Parsons, and if she didn't like it, she would slam it in her column, and that was the end of that film. So both she and Hedy, Hedda Hopper had an incredible power o- over Hollywood. I mean, it was amazing. They were. Utterly tyrannical. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Jerome Charon, C-H-A-R-Y-N. Uh, his latest book, Big Red from Live Right. Uh, uh, and let's talk a bit about your background. You, uh, you've been all over the place from 62. I'm going to go through a whole list, okay? From cool. 1962 to 64, you taught at uh, Manhattan's High School of Music and Art and at the High right. School of Performing Arts. And then you lectured in English at CCNY in 1965. You were an assistant professor in English at Stanford University from 65 to 68. You mentioned being at Stanford. A visiting professor at Rice University, 79, and Princeton University, 81 until 86. And then you were back at CCNY from 88 to 89. And you were a distinguished professor of film studies at the American University of Paris until 2009. Finally decided to retire from teaching after that? No, they was, I was thrown out. I was making too high a salary. And I couldn't, I would bankrupt the school. But the problem was that all the students loved me so that when I left, I mean, they all, they all were very, very upset. I loved teaching films, Leonard. I, didn't like to teach writing, but I loved being in a class, watching films with students. By the way, you seem to know my biography better than I do. So. <laughs> uh, but the thing is that um, it, also there's a very interesting story at music and art. You know, well, I would come in uh, when uh, I, you know, I, w- I wanted to be a writer at a very early age. So what I would do is that if you picked one school or two schools and you were available every day, you would be the first on their list. So I was the first one picked from the High School of Music and Art. But what ultimately would happen was a teacher would get ill, so I'd have long-term assignments when I couldn't write. And at this point, uh, there was a tremendous, uh, you know, overload of teachers. You know, no one could get tenure. But the students loved me so much that the principal called me in and he looked at me and he said, you know, we want to keep you. We want to give you tenure. And then I looked back at him, I said, no, he thought I was crazy. But I realized that if I stayed on there as much as I loved the students, I'd never be able to write. You had to do, you know, 3,000 compositions and, you know, correct them every week. It was like Bartleby the Scrivener, you know. So um, I had fun teaching, and the students saw that. And my wife, uh, Lenore, I I met her at Performing Arts, and uh, she was very young and you know of course we didn't get together at that point and then 46 years later she, 
you know, someone's student put me on Facebook, and she got in touch with me, and that's how we met again, and we've been together ever since. Well, I was going to ask you how you found the time to write novels, memoirs, graphic novels, books about film, short stories, plays, and works of nonfiction while you were teaching. Did you just have to take breaks from the teaching, or could you work at night as well? Uh, I worked all day from morning, you know, because a lot of the time I was alone. And what I would do is that when I was teaching in Paris, uh, I would have my computer set up in both places. I would get off the plane and go right to my computer. So I was able to work both in Paris, where I had a wonderful apartment, and in New York. I work all the time, Lynn. As a matter of fact, you're interrupting my writing, so I'm going to get off the air. <laughs> really? You're making me feel guilty. Um, Don't were, feel guilty. I'm having a little fun. Were your French students as interested in the ins and outs of Hollywood history as they were about the history of their own countries? Important no, film they, history? No, they, they weren't French students. They were oh. American. They, they were sort of outcasts. They were very. They were the best students Oh, the American had. University in Paris, I see. Yes. Because, you know, France... France is a pretty distinguished cinema cinema history as well. They have the only cinema history. We have no cinema history in this country. We have no history at all. This is what disturbs me so much. I mean, if you go to France, they remember, you know, Howard Hawks, everything. They're the ones who rediscovered Wells. I mean, I didn't know Wells as a child. I only learned about him, you know, when I was an adult. But uh, the French were the first ones... They saw, you know, Citizen Kane right after the war, and they realized that it was unlike any other film ever made. And uh, that's one reason why I wanted to write about Orson mm. Welles, is that he was such, he was a dynamiter. If he had stayed out in Hollywood, he would have ruined it. He would have destroyed it. But, uh, but by destroying himself, he left us with certain masterpieces, and... He was an extraordinary man, so I, I really loved writing about him and Rita. Well, before we get to Wells, uh, I was thinking about how uh, I did a show earlier on how the f people like Truffaut were looking at the, the movies that were being made in New York, and that yes. became an influence on their work. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. On the Nouvelle Vague. On the Nouvelle Vague, and Truffaut is my favorite director. I love the Quatre Cent Coups, the Four Hundred Blows. I mean, it's really the story of my childhood. Hmm. And Godard is the one who said, in order to make a film, all you need is a girl and a gun. You know, so it's really Hollywood that made Godard. He just, instead of you know all these you know crazy camera equipment, he had a handheld camera. And he, you know, he, he did, you know, whatever he wanted. He revolutionized cinema, you know, made it into, into a different kind of art. But without the French, we wouldn't have the history of film. We wouldn't have you know, the film noir. Film noir is America's greatest contribution to cinema. And it's only the French who discovered that we were doing film noir. We didn't have that word. We didn't know what we were doing. We had no one to tell us what we were doing. So the French kind of told us what we were doing. <laughs> yes, they told us that, you know, they were the ones who used the term film noir. And I remember in 1947, I saw a film called T-Men. 
and it was about the treasury agents. And, and all I saw was a window blind with shadows on. And I said, wow, I've never seen this before. So, you know, film noir, you know, exists in the shadows. And, and it, it, was, it really comes about because of the fear of women. So when soldiers went away during World War II, they were afraid that their wives or girlfriends would be stolen. So out of this, you, you get the femme fatale. You know, you get uh, the introduction of film noir, which Americans never, never even knew was going on. We have no sense of history. You really think Americans have no sense of history? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Is that why you, you know, write these novels, <laughs> the ones that, that do deal with historic issues? No, I write, I, I write about uh, the history because I, I was an historian at, at, at college and I was very much interested in history, but there was no language there. I, I didn't find any historians who pleased me. I mean, uh, there are a few historians who write beautifully, but most of them don't. And uh, what is the difference between the historical novel and, 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 and the biography? I don't think there is that much difference except it gives me pleasure, and that's all that matters. Well, what, what are the differences between a historical novel and a straight history, other than the fact that you can make up some of the dialogue? And Well, dialogue is, is incredible, and music, the music of the language. I mean, uh, you, you can invent the dialogue, or you can, as a matter of fact, when I was working on my Lincoln novel, my editor, Bob Wiles, said, you know, take out this sentence, Lincoln would never say it. And it was one of the sentences that Lincoln did say. So, you see, we have all our misconceptions about who people are. And I remember when I met with a film historian in Gettysburg, he kissed my hand and he said, you know, you explained Lincoln to me. You told me how Lincoln was. So, uh, in other words, I, I must have done something that, that added to... Uh, to the history, and, uh, and uh, that novel killed me because it took me so long to write, and then I had to go into the South to follow some of the places where Lincoln went at, at near the end of the war, and um, I just couldn't get away from his voice. I just loved him so much and admired him so much. He's the most extraordinary human being to me most extraordinary human being that, that we've ever had in this country. He and Malcolm X, those are the two people that I admire the most. And are you, have you written about Malcolm X? Uh, no, I haven't written about Malcolm X, but um, I do think he was an extraordinary human being, uh, and uh, I, I, I adore him, you know, I really do. I, everything he did coming from being a criminal to realizing he's the one who said, you know, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was incredible. No, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't write a novel about Malcolm, but I, I do love him. Well, you obviously love, like the witty things that people say, but uh, one of the differences between writing a novel about history and writing a straight history is that the only uh, funny things uh, that you can put in a straight history are things that people said, as you, you mentioned. Uh, you can invent stuff. You you can uh, m 
you can come up with funny lines about people. Well, you know, I, I have written biographies. I, I have I wrote a, bi- a biography about Isaac Babo, and I wrote a bi- biography about Joe DiMaggio, and, and I was able to put my own music uh, into those books, but they're, they're not novels. They don't have the curve, the, 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 the line, the music that a novel has. I mean, you're... you're you're limited. You're bounded by by events. And, and right now, I'm I'm doing a novel about Maria Callas, and it's very very difficult because again, you're you're bounded by by her history, and yet I love her. You know, I saw a documentary on her, and I said, if she were still alive, I would divorce my wife and marry her, though she might not want to marry me, but thing is, I fell in love with her. You have to fall in love with people if you're going to write about. And I, I fell in love with Emily Dickinson too. I was going to ask you if you if you're working on your next book. I guess do you ever what does one occur to you while you're finishing up the previous one? Um very often it does. I remember I have finished one novel. I was teaching at Princeton and while I was on the train going to Princeton I started the next one. You know, it's always getting the first sentence. So while you're writing something, you're thinking of something else. And, you know, but there were long periods of time. You know, you can't take anything for granted, Leonard. I mean, there were long periods of time when I couldn't write at all. I lived in Paris for a long time, and I got frightened. I don't know why I couldn't write, and I didn't realize that that I was living in Paris that was preventing me from writing. And, and I've been, you know, I've been. I've, and I've why do you think that is? What was it about Paris know. that prevented you from writing? After no, all, I, I, some pretty great scared. works come out of uh, people came from people who were living in Paris. No, I, I think what after kind of a while, I, I, I understood what was happening. I, I, I suddenly came back from Paris. I was terribly depressed. I was sitting in my bathtub and realized that I wasn't depressed at all, and I began writing again. So it, the thing is, I always wanted to live in Paris, even when I was five years old, because I saw the Arc de Triomphe, and I said, mm-hmm. this is the place where I want to live. So I moved to Paris, you know, always dreamt of living there, and while I was living in Paris, I was dreaming of New York, so you can see I'm completely crazy. You mentioned getting the first sentence right. Do you do you have to get that right before you can continue? Is that... Uh, it takes about a month to get the first sentence, it really, uh, and also the last sentence, because it's the dive into something and the dive out of it that are so difficult. But if you have the first sentence, when I had that first sentence, I knew I had the novel. I knew I found the music, and it was uh, so... Um, uh, it was so right for this character that then I knew that I could I could continue. And Rusty is me, of course. You know, every character you write about is is yourself, the evil ones and the good ones. Even though, uh, as we pointed out, Rusty is a woman, and this is not the first oh, novel you've written from in the voice of a woman. No. And I did the, the Secret Life of Emily Dickinson in Emily Dickinson's voice. Hmm. That had to be interesting because she was. We know how she wrote. We know her voice. Yes, but you know she wrote extraordinary letters. She she was probably the you know people talk about her poetry how great her poetry is, but her letters are as great as her poems. So I, I was. 
completely overwhelmed. I mean, there are two writers I, I just can't fathom, and that's Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson. Their use of language, I just, it, it's beyond my comprehension how, how Hamlet was written. Hamlet, all of my work comes out of that play. I mean, it, it's just such an extraordinary piece of writing. And then when I discovered Emily Dick Dickinson, I just said, well, I don't have to read anything. <laughs> I have the people that I need. Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson. Yes. <laughs> An interesting combination. Well, no, they're very similar in a way because they use language, in, you know, in a way that's never been used before, the juxtaposition of words. I mean, uh, it's just incredible, and, and you could read them forever. You know, I, I don't. I think I've read Hamlet at least three thousand times, and I'm wow. always overwhelmed each time I read it. You know, I, I don't. I, I said, is this the play that I read before? It's it's just incredible. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org When they had the earthquake in San Francisco back in 196 They said that old mother nature was up to her old tricks story that went around, but here's the real lowdown. Put the blame on Maine, boy. Put the blame on Maine. One night she started to shim and shake. That brought on the Frisco quake. So you can put the blame on Maine, boy. Put the blame on me. A little bit of Rita Hayworth, because we're talking about Rita Hayworth. Uh, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jerome Charon. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the novel we're discussing, Big Red. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call to O nine twenty nine fifty during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or two one two two oh nine twenty nine fifty. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large and we thank you very much. And return to Jerome Charon, whose latest book is Big Red, a novel starring Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, you, you have had uh, nearly 50 published works already, um, been uh, uh, given any number of awards as well, um, uh, even named Commander of Arts and Letters, the Order des Arts et des Lettres, by the French Minister of Culture. But there's another side of you that we haven't even gotten to. Aren't you... Um, a tournament table tennis player? Yes, that's been the great ruination of my life. In the last two years, I've not been able to play ten table tennis, uh, so it's really wrecked me, but uh, it, it gave me a kind of rhythm, and I became a tournament player in France. Uh, one day, the singer Georges Moustaki called me and said that 
first of all, do you know who I am? I said, yes, of course I know who you are. And he played every day. So for about a year, that's why I wasn't writing. We went to a ping pong club and we would play and then we would go to a Greek restaurant. And what I loved most is the women at the restaurant would serenade him with his own songs. So, uh, I mean, I, I had an incredible amount of pleasure, but I wasn't writing. So I had to stop, you know. Well, Don DeLillo. Yeah. Don DeLillo called your book on table tennis, the uh, sizzling chops and devilish spins. The sun also rises up for ping pong. It probably is, but that's not my title. My title was Ping Pong or the Art of Staying Alive. So Uh I don't know why the publisher changed it. Uh, but I I I love table tennis. I I um, I I'm I'm just so sorry that uh, that I have to stop. I used to play with my agent, and he's older than I am, and he was getting better, and I was getting worse. So I just couldn't understand. Let's get back to the book we're discussing, Big Red. Uh, you begin the story in 1943. Wasn't Rita Hayworth already a big star at that point? Uh, she was a she was a star, not a big star. Uh, she'd done Cover Girl, uh, and um, she was Columbia's biggest star. But it, it's only with Gilda that she becomes an international star. But, but she, but even before <laughs> Gilda, she was the favorite pinup girl for GIs during World War II. No, I'm sorry, you're wrong, Leonard. Yeah. Betty Grable was the favorite ah. pinup girl, and uh, and uh, I've been misinformed. <laughs> well, why not? I uh-huh. mean, this is my metier, you know. So, uh, so Betty Grable was the big pinup girl, but after Gilda, I mean, it was like an atomic bomb. I mean, she manages to do a striptease without taking anything off but one glove. I mean, you know, you just put on the song, put the blame on name. But it's an extraordinary moment in the film. And this was a woman who was violated by her own father. And uh, she was... She, he, was se- he sexually molested her, Eduardo? Yes, he did. He did. He danced with her. She was his dancing partner, and he did molest her. He did, yeah. He had her begin taking lessons, dancing lessons, when she was just three and a half years old. But you say... He molested her when she was a little older, and her. Uh, did her mother at least try to protect her? No, her mother did nothing. Her mother did absolutely nothing. This is one of the great sadnesses, to, and uh, it destroyed her. She was completely shy. Uh, she had no sense of language, but, you know, she loved to perform on the screen. You can see that kind of sexuality. There's never been a film like Gilder where, you know, the first time you see her, her head pops up uh, like a jack-in-the-box, and uh, you're completely overwhelmed. You can't take your eyes off her. She was the most beautiful woman in the world, and she couldn't speak a word. She was, she was so well, why couldn't, uh, she was just nervous because she was born in Brooklyn, so she obviously must have grown up uh She wasn't educated. She didn't go beyond the eighth grade, so she felt very, very insecure about uh, about language. About and remember, uh, Roosevelt invited her to the White House. She wouldn't go because she was ashamed that she wouldn't know what to say. Uh, So she suffered a great deal, you know. But um, 
I, I tried to show some of that, uh, but uh, she was there, and, and she said that um, the only man she ever loved was was Orson Welles, and of course Orson, in his own way, said, you know, if 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 she calls this happiness, what is the rest of her life like? You know, he was very cruel, and um, she adored him. She adored him throughout her entire life. Well, he was one of any number of husbands that she had. How many times was she married? She was married about five or six times, but the only one she ever really loved was Orson Welles. She didn't love anybody else. She adored him. You depict her desire to improve herself intellectually to be a better match for, for Wells. Yes, that's why Rusty is hired to sort of teach her about literature and uh, there are great comic moments where she says, you know, I, I can't speak to you because I have to read War and Peace, but the, the thing is, I don't think she could have gotten past the first paragraph. She was basically illiterate. And they come across as an odd couple, um, but she was a big star. Uh, he has come to be considered one of the greatest directors of all he was time. the greatest. No, let, let, let's make it clear, Leonard. He was the greatest director mm. of all time. You it think so? Only, Citizen Kane is the greatest American film? Citizen Kane is the greatest. The only competition he has is, is Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction. Well, those are the two films that have defined American cinema, and those are America's two greatest geniuses. I have a and feeling he, there are people who will... I'll be willing to argue with you about that, but Citizen well, they Crane... they would be wrong. They would be wrong. <laughs> they can argue all they want, but they would be wrong. But Citizen, Citizen Kane is a pretty great film. It's considered... It's it's come to be considered a great film. But how was it viewed at the time? Oh, it wasn't viewed at all. It wasn't shown. I mean, in other, in other words, uh, uh, Louis B. Mayer said he was willing to give the president of RKO... Uh, $850,000, which was the budget, uh, if he didn't show the film, because uh, he was supposedly making fun of William Randolph Hearst. Actually, the film is more about himself than William Randolph Hearst, but uh, since he also is making fun of Marion Davies, uh, uh, Wella Parsons uh, really ruined the film, but it wasn't shown. I didn't see it as a child, you know, but it's the French who rediscovered it after the war. And in the 1950s, I mean, I think, you know, The Lady from Shanghai, which is 1947, is the first film of his. Mm -hmm. or, or I, I saw The Stranger, which was earlier, but um, it, it was also, uh, you know, The Lady from Shanghai, The Mirror Scene. I don't know if you've seen that film, but The Mirror Scene in the lady from Shanghai is the, the most extraordinary piece of cinema we've ever had. It shows the shattering of glass, which is sort of the shattering of the lives of the two hmm. main characters, and also the fact that the screen itself seems alive. So uh, I would challenge anyone, to, and I would get into a debate with anyone, to say that there was a greater filmmaker than Austin. But I mean, his I real success... His success at the time was mostly on the radio. Oh, yes. Remember, it wasn't only radio. It was also the theater. He revolutionized the theater, uh, and then he revolutionized radio, and he revolutionized cinema with his first film. He just said, I want to do this, and he had a great cinematographer, Greg Tolan, and he said, do 
that, do this, do that. So what Greg Toland did, he took the, the painting of, uh, of the castle um, in, in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and put it on, painted it onto the screen, and that became Xanadu. So in other words, the, the, the great tragedy of Wells's life is that he needed Hollywood as much as Hollywood needed him. And when they worked together, he, the, the technical facility that Hollywood had made his films extraordinary. There is not one moment in Citizen Kane that is, you know, it, it's so overwhelming from moment to moment that, you know, one of the first shots is, is, is the opening of Xanadu and it says, beware, do not enter. And, and if you enter this film, you're going to see something that you've never seen before. Watch it tonight, Leonard, and you'll see what I'm saying. But their relationship, as much as she adored him, was a troubled one. Although yeah, all of her marriages so, were troubled. <laughs> yes, but the thing is, he was, you know, having an affair with Judy Garland. He, he had an affair with Marilyn Monroe. I mean, uh, he was a great troubadour. He, he was not a nice person, but she adored him. You know, and that the famous quote is that men go to sleep with Gilder and wake up with me. You know, that, you know, she was not, she didn't want to be a movie star. She wanted to stay home. Well, did everything change for her after she had her hairline altered and dyed her hair red? Oh, completely ruined her career, you know. Well, it no, didn't ruin her career. It made her oh, career. No, oh, no, when it died. No, I'm sorry. I, I was, no, everything changed for when her, her hair was dyed red. I thought you were talking about when uh, Orson Welles cut her hair and oh. turned her into a blonde. No, she had dark a- black <laughs> hair, and then it was dyed red, and, and it grew very long. She, she had, had electrolysis as well. Yes. She had very low hairline, so that um, that was removed, and her first husband, Eddie Judson, paid for it, and he's the one who turned her into a star. I'm speaking. Yeah, I'm speaking with Jerome Charon, whose latest book is Big Red, a novel starring Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles, published by Livewright. This is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM, streaming live at WBAI dot org. She was a very good dancer and held her own as a partner of of pretty great dancers like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Well, not only that, Fred Astaire said he would never dance with her again because she was a better dancer than he was. I, mean, he, I, I think that's a, debatable, but uh, they were pretty you, terrific. You, Leonard, you always, you always contradict me and you're always wrong. <laughs> okay. Was <a> <laughs> Astaire was, is pretty great. Fred Astaire, look it up. I'm a mm. biographer, mm. said, I will never dance with that woman mm. again. She's too damn good. Okay. Well, I just saw a film where he was dancing on the on the walls and the ceiling. <laughs> it was very impressive. Shot. That's uh, a trick shot. I know. Don't don't, don't be fooled. But you know, he was look. Fred Astaire was the greatest dancer, but he did say that uh, mm. she was the greatest partner that he ever had. So I'm 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 just being willful. I'm being stubborn. But uh, well, she was a great dancer. You mentioned that Gilda really was an important breakthrough, which she did with. Glenn Ford in 1946, yes. but she'd been in a number of notable previous films, like Only Angels Have Wings, 1939. But she was not. She was not the star of that film. No. She had a very minor role. 
She was in The Strawberry Blonde, Blood and Sand, and then with two films with Astaire, You'll Never Get Rich, and You Were Never Lovelier. Right, and she also was with with Gene Kelly. Mm -hmm. She also danced with Gene Kelly, but she was not cover girl, but she was not a big star until... In other words, she was a star, but Gilder made her the most extraordinary star in the world, everywhere. She was a star everywhere in 1946. I mean, it was such a big hit that Harry Cohn didn't know what to do. And then what does Orson Welles do? You know, he's the great dynamiter. He puts her in uh, The Lady from Shanghai, but not only that, he cuts her hair and dyes it blonde, and she never really recovered from that. Hmm. Even though Gilda was really her first major dramatic role, she handles herself very well. She was a terrific actress, and and uh, you, if you see her in separate tables, she's she performs extremely well. I mean, she was just a very set. Look, when you've been sort of uh, you know taken advantage of by your own father at the age of twelve, I mean, how do you recover from that, Leonard? I mean, you just can't. It stays with you for the rest of your life. Well, uh, you said she was married how many times? Four or five times? At least five times. The uh, the, the one uh, that I remember best, of course, was her marriage to Ali Khan. Ali Khan, uh, yes. Uh, that was at the end of her life. No, it wasn't at the end of her life. It, it was, she was uh, in, in her 30s. And... Uh, he again, he saw her in Gilder and said, I want to marry this woman. You know, she didn't, she didn't like him. When she first saw him, she tried to stay away from him. But Elsa Maxwell, who's the great yenta of, uh, of Hollywood, put them together. And so she married him. And she had to live in Europe. And she brought all her money. He stole, you know, uh, he was the son of the Aga Khan, who was the richest man in the world. And he lived on an allowance. So he stole all her money, left her in, you know, impoverished. She came back uh, to Manhattan, uh, you know, I mean, to, to Manhattan and then to Hollywood and had to start her career all over again. It was a terrible, terrible marriage. She was taken advantage of by, I mean, Orson was the only one who didn't steal money from her, every other <laughs> husband. It's, it comes as a shock that Ali Khan... <laughs> One of the richest people in the world would have stolen money from his wife, but uh, Leonard, he was not rich. He got I understand. I understand what you're father. saying there. His father was rich. Still, it's a. I always thought he was rich. Didn't understand. Well, he had horse farms. He had, uh, you know, he he had uh, estates, et cetera, et cetera. But he lived on an allowance, and his father took his allowance away. He was penniless. So he took her $300,000 and, you know, and spent it. What happened in the later years of her life? Well, she sort of fell. She had Alzheimer's at a very early age in, in, her, in, her, in her early 60s. I mean, there were signs of this. She would forget her lines and uh, her daughter, Princess Yasmin, uh, took care of her. And as a matter of fact, uh, my wife visited the uh, apartment where um, uh, Rita lived near the end of her life on Central Park West, you know, which is very, very sad. And I think Princess Yasmin has started a foundation, an Alzheimer's foundation, 
to deal with the problem. But she had early onset uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, and she, you know, in her 50s, she would uh, forget her lines. And uh, it's very sad. She had a very, very sad life. But she loved Dawson Wells. And, you know, that love, you know, enriches you. I mean, it gave her a certain power. It didn't matter that Orson was an awful husband. She loved him, and that gave her a certain enrichment that she really needed, and she admired his intellect, and uh, um, she just adored him. So I, I can't say anything more than that. I mean, Orson was Orson. Hmm. Well, uh, she died fairly young. Yes. She was in her late six. I think she was 69, but hmm. I mean... Um, uh, but her last years were awful. She, 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 you know, she, she had to be kept in one room because she, you know, she became very angry, very surly. But uh, she was, you know, uh, you know, th that's one reason for writing this book is that you, you, you know, I still insist that America has no past. I, I'm old enough to realize that, you know, we've forgotten what our history was like, what our country was like. I mean, when, let's say, Roosevelt was president, um, the thing is that um, she, I, I wanted to bring her back to life. That is the magic that, that a novelist has. I mean, I'm not talking about myself here. I'm talking about the power that we can evoke, that we can bring someone back to life. And give you give the reader a certain pleasure. I remember in one of the reviews that have come out, they said, "Don't go to the movies. Read this book. You know, you learn more about Hollywood by reading." Yeah, well, and looking at film clips of her singing, uh, "Put the Blame on Mame," uh, reminded me of just how gorgeous she was and how. Uh, I don't know what word I want to use, but how spectacular she appeared on the screen. She's listed as one of the top 25 female motion pictures stars of all time, the American Film Institute survey, yeah. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Stars. So she's still remembered with great fondness, isn't she? I, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I mean, if you if you're old enough, if you took someone who's 25 or, or, or you know, or younger, I don't think they would know. I don't. I, it's not a question of not knowing who Rita is. I, I think we live in an ahistorical time. I mean, people don't remember the past, and they're not interested in the past. It's. Uh, this is my own feeling. I could be wrong. I mean, but I, I think she is remembered by some. Of course, we, we, she's remembered because we can see her films, and Gilder is is is, is the film that, and also that uh, Stephen King wrote a novella about her that was made into the Shawshank Redemption. You know, so she is remembered in a way, but. I, I I do think that we live in an ahistorical culture. We can disagree about it, but that's that's okay. And I I this is the power that the writer has. You can back the past. I I agree. It's I I consider it one of my responsibilities to remind people about history and also about the details that get lost as yes. history. 
And, and often those details are among the most important aspects of the history. The de details are everything. Uh, I mean, very often I will read an entire book just looking for one detail. I have the to leave it there. Jerome, no. I have to leave it there. I'm so sorry we've run out of time, but it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Jerome Charon, his latest book, this is your 50th or so, Big Red, yes. a novel starring Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles, published by Live Right. Thank you again. Thank you, Leonard. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI. Dot org right now. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. BAI is going through a rather rough time. Um, I'm, the pandemic has not helped. So we need your, your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Big Red by Jerome Charon. So make that call now, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. Or you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. We'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to come a BAI buddy for $10 or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now. Uh, WBAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Please help us with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you'll join us tomorrow when my guest Susan Hartman will discuss her new book, City of Refugees. We'll see you then.